Uh, if you're new here, my name is Ian. Uh, I'm the pastor, and it's a, it's a real joy to lead this community. Uh, we're going to open the scriptures today. Um, and so we've been in this series on Ephesians, and we've been in this series for a long time, which is not, I guess, not normal for us, but it's kind of what we've been doing. But we are almost to the end. Ephesians has six chapters, and we're in Ephesians chapter six. So it's a beautiful thing to be together today. We're at that weird intersection point in Princeton where some of you guys just got here. And if you're new to Princeton, welcome. We're so glad you're here. Again, this community is made up of people that live here, that are here all year round, and people that, that come in and come and, and come and go with the seasons. And so whether that's what describes you, we're so glad you're here. If this is a new culture for you, like not just like if New Jersey's new to you, welcome. Uh, don't worry, there's like a rough exterior around the people of New Jersey, but they're like Cadbury mini eggs or cream eggs on the inside. It's the most beautiful people. And I say that both as an insider and as an outsider. And if this is, you know, your first time in the United States, welcome. We're so glad you're here. And, and what we have before us, and what, you'll hear me say this over and over again over the next couple months, is an opportunity to be a witness of what it looks like to be the people of God in the United States. People from every culture and tongue and tribe coming together and rallying around the name of Jesus. And so we are so honored that we get to be in this space. Well, today, we get to talk about the devil. So welcome. I want to say, Les, if you're, if you're not new to maybe New Jersey, but you're like, I finally got out of bed and decided to come to church today, and this guy's really going to talk about the devil. Yeah. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world that he doesn't exist. This is uh, Kaiser Soze and the usual suspects. C.S. Lewis, in the screw tape letters, a sort of parable of demons writing how they're trying to convert those people who follow Jesus, picks up on the way that the forces of darkness don't operate in ways that are obvious to us. You know, I, I, we all kind of have this sense. We watch these epic films and we think to ourselves, I mean, if evil was right in front of me, I would resist it. But that's not the way that evil actually works. Evil works in a much more subtle and covert way in our world. And today, we're going to talk about these forces of evil. And we're going to talk about them in such a way that I think it first demands the question of us. First, when you hear that phrase, the devil, what is your first response? I think we can fall into several categories. I'll, I'll give you three that maybe tend to be larger buckets. First of all, I think there's the, the outright dismissal. Like you hear me say the devil and you're like, really? Guy with pointy tail and ears and pitchfork? Like that's really what we're doing here? Haven't we evolved past thinking in these ways? Second, I think, is distancing dismissal. Maybe you're a Christian, what I call distancing dismissal, the second one there. Maybe you're a Christian, you've been a Christian for a while, and because of your upbringing, maybe because of the culture that you grew up in, maybe you kind of experienced that everything had something to do with the devil, or maybe you associate people that, that tend to talk about the devil with a certain kind of fundamentalism, and you're like, whatever team they're on, I'm not quite on that team, and I don't want to be associated with them. And so there's a lot of Christians that are a little bit too cool for this talk of the spiritual realities that Jesus seems to embrace. And so for many of us, we're like, I don't really know what to do with that, but I don't really want to be associated with those folks. 
The last one is the overreaching acceptance. Again, maybe you are from a culture that there's a devil behind every corner, under every rock. You know, maybe you've seen somebody guzzle like 80 ounces of coffee and then complain that the devil gave them a headache. And you're like, no, Lois, you just need to drink some water. Right? And so I don't know where you may fall on that spectrum if you're coming from a different place, but it's important for us to understand that when we hear these things, we have kind of a set reaction. Let's zoom out a little bit because all of this is so important. Because whether we're talking about the devil or just spirituality in general, it's easy to assume that our culture, being American Western culture, and again, if you're new here, welcome. Um, we want, we'll talk about it kind of from this location, but also want to acknowledge that many of you are from cultures that are very different than American culture, which is a gift, and I'm so grateful. But the sort of Western construct is that we are rational people, that science has helped us to move beyond these simple superstitions and mythologies, and that people are increasingly moving away from these kinds of explanations for the things that happen in our world. This is a common cliche that gets played again and again, that the world used to be a place filled with all these little mythologies. People assume that sneezes were somehow a manifestation of demons, thus the response, bless you. The world was filled with idols, that were either statues and you could see them, or there were superstitions about why crops failed or succeeded. The philosopher Charles Taylor called this world a porous world, where people assumed that there was this overlap between the world that they could see and experience with their senses and the world that they could not see. And the world that they could not see was in no way less real than the world that they could see. But Taylor notes over the last several centuries, there's been this shift, and now we live in what he calls an imminent frame, in the sense that the only world that is real is the world that we can experience with our senses, that which we can see or touch or hear. And Taylor masterfully points out, while this is our dominant cultural assumption, the superstitious elements of our culture have far from faded away. They've just changed their names. Now take the popular phenomenon of manifesting. Anybody know what manifesting is? What is manifesting? The short answer is pretty much whatever you want it to be. This is a great example of manifesting. Apparently, there's a movement on the internet to get the artist Lord to make another album. And so people are manifesting that she would do that, and somehow on Twitter, they're going to make Lord make another album. What they don't realize is that Taylor Swift just stole her style and that Lord has been rendered. Oh, wait, that's only for some of you. From a Vox article, the act of manifesting has a ton of complicated rules or is whatever you want it to be, a very postmodern approach to spirituality indeed, depending on who you ask. One popular TikTok, which is now apparently a source for information, claims that by simply coming across it, you've already manifested the video. And in fact, you've unconsciously manifested everything that has happened in your life. She quickly clarified that nobody manifests their trauma. Some say there is no right way to manifest, while others claim it won't work if you don't connect to the spiritual word world first. Scripting can either mean writing down your desire or writing down your desire precisely 33 times for three days and then finishing it. Uh, all this manifests and better. That's your mantra. Just in case the universe decides to send even more than what you asked for. Now again, of course, we're sort of reading that. We're like, that's ridiculous. But then listen to how people talk, right? Like the word vibes is just 
common, common vocabulary. We have this, we, we have to have this sense for how to convey that which we can't see. Have you ever been in a place that just felt off to you? Like you're just like walking around, maybe it's a specific place. You know, Josh and I were talking about New Orleans earlier. I used to live there. There's places in New Orleans you're just like, something's not right here. Or maybe you've been in a place where there's been significant uh, historical events. And you're like, something's going on here. Again, we tend, we want to have words for these kinds of expressions, the universe, the vibes, you know, just off. Tara Isabella Burton writes in her book, Strange Right, that though the world may have the veneer of becoming less religious, less superstitious, humans just seem to have this propensity for making religions. And it's something that we do without even thinking about it, these causes and quests that won't go away. She describes at the same time that the nuns in America are rising, so when people are surveyed and they're asked what religion do they identify with, increasingly that answer has been no religion. And sociologist Ryan Burge has covered a lot of this in some really impressive ways. He's got a book called Rise of the Nuns that's really helpful. But Tara Isabella Burton writes about what she calls the rise of internet religions. And the book is brilliant. She sort of traces this new age post-Christian spirituality uh, that's sort of seeking after the kind of uh, purpose and meaning and sort of transcendence that religion has always been about. But she writes in sort of summarizing these internet religions, a religion of emotive intuition, of aesthetized and commodified experience, of self-creation and self-improvement, and yes, selfies, a religion for a new generation of Americans raised to think of themselves both as capitalists, consumers, and as content creators. A religion decoupled from institutions, from creeds, from metaphysical truth claims about God or the universe or the way things are, but that still seeks in various and varying ways to provide us with the pillars of what religion always has, meaning, purpose, community, ritual. And I say all this just kind of as a, a way of guiding our thinking today, as we sort of talk about, as Paul will open up the scriptures, is that perhaps our world is not as rational or secular or uh, agnostic as we've been led to believe. And this helps us as we're going to get into our passage today. Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. He says, finally, be strong in the Lord. And in the strength of his power, put on the whole armor of God so that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For one, our struggle is not against blood and flesh, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Paul begins our text for today with an exhortation. He says, be strong in the Lord. But even this strength is not something that comes from us. You know, you see this juxtaposition with kind of new age spirituality. If you can just think the right things, it's this kind of, you know, atheistic prosperity gospel. Just think the right things and the right things will happen to you. What we find is that life is hard and that doesn't actually work out. But when Paul says, be strong in the Lord and be strengthened by him, this doesn't come from us. Earlier in Ephesians, Paul encouraged the church to clothe yourselves with the new self, created according to the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. This is Ephesians 4, verse 24. This putting on of righteousness and holiness is a consistent and a deliberate act, but the garments we are wearing, these garments of the new self, are given to us 
They are a gift of God given to us by his son, Jesus. And more specifically, we'll see how Paul takes this metaphor and he extends it not just to garments that we put on daily, but into armor. And how we wear the whole armor of God in order to stand against what Paul says are the wiles of the devil. And Paul tells us, verse 11, put on the whole armor of God so that you may be able to stand. And we'll get into this more next week as we look at the armor of God, but it's often, there's this notion that Paul's exhortation to stand is almost like fortifying ourselves, like a shell that we go into just to survive life. That it's defensive, that the devil will come with all this force and we're simply to try to survive it. The idea that's often conveyed is the armor of God is merely defensive. But that's not what we see here. I love what Walter Wink says. He says, even people, when they talk about nuclear weapons, they talk about them that they're defensive weapons. And so what Paul is saying here is that there's a victory that's been given to us because of what Jesus has done. And we'll see in other passages as we look at this today, there's a victory that's been given to us that we can stand And when Paul talks about a stance, one of the first things, I don't know for some of you, you're boxers or you're wrestlers, and you learned, what's the first thing you learn? You learn how to stand. You learn how to approach. You learn how to take a punch a little bit. And what Paul is describing here is your stance. As you enter into this cosmic battle, understanding what it means to stand the right way so that you don't get knocked over from the very start. More on that next week. But for this week, how can we understand the devil and more specifically the wiles of the devil? I want to kind of zoom out with the scriptures again. Genesis 3, there's a serpent in the garden. Now you could ask the question, why is there a snake in the garden? Why would an all-powerful, all-knowing God, if he's so concerned with upholding a few certain rules, allow something that can undermine these plans so easily into his garden? It's a good question. And frankly, we're not told the answer. The serpent's presence in Genesis 3 is never explained. But apparently there's something inherent to the story that God is writing that involves choice and responsibility and thus possibility. The serpent in Genesis 3 speaks. And as we often talk about here at Ecclesia, words create worlds. And the first words from a character in a story, in the hands especially of a master storyteller, usually have so much to say to us about that character. And the writer of Genesis writes, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the other wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God really say that you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, You must, um, excuse me, the woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now notice the serpent's tactics here. Did God really say? God in Genesis 1 and 2 has been a speaking relational God. It's so fascinating that the way that God brings the world into existence is by speaking. Let there be light. Let there be the sun and the moon to govern the night and the day. God has been speaking. There's a relational component to speaking. God is not commanding like a dictator, 
but he's calling forth, inviting God. He's been a speaking God. In Genesis 2, we see that this speech, this grand cosmic speech becomes a whisper as God speaks tenderly to his creation, the first man and the first woman in the garden. God is a speaking God. And notice, the serpent has no power in and of itself, but its power lies in distortion. Did God really say And the serpent goes directly for the core of this man and this woman's identity, that which God has spoken over them, which is both freedom, if you read Genesis 2, I give you permission to eat from any tree in the garden, but also limitation. But there is one tree that is not good for you. And the serpent asked the question, did God really say? And the aftermath of this interaction, if you read Genesis 3, is complete fracturing, what we call the fall. Again, we're not told anything about the serpent's origins or its motivations, but we see that the genesis of the serpent's role in the story is the role of lies, distortion, and it is an agent of chaotic destruction and isolation. The man and the woman, upon taking the fruit, upon the serpent's suggestions, realize that they are naked. They try to hide themselves. They try to clothe themselves with figs and leaves. There's a fracturing of the relationship between the man and the woman. The man points to the woman, and when God asks the question, did you eat from the the fruit that I told you not to eat from? The man points to the woman and says, she made me do it. And there's this complete and utter breakdown. The story is brilliant. The Hebrew people will later apply the name to this deceiver, the serpent, Hasatan, which means accuser. We see Jesus confronting the forces of darkness repeatedly throughout his ministry and life. In Luke's gospel, the first act of Jesus' public ministry is to come to the Jordan River and receive baptism. As Jesus is baptized, a voice from heaven in Luke chapter 3 pronounces, This is my Son, with whom I am well pleased. Pay attention to that. That public blessing and affirmation spoken by God will become a really important feature in just a moment. And look at what immediately follows that story. So that's in Luke 3. Then the beginning of Luke chapter 4, it says, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, Tell this stone to become bread. What did God say of Jesus at his baptism? This is my son, with whom I'm well pleased. Before Jesus did anything. Friends, that is so important for us to remember. This is how God sees you. God is not waiting for you to fulfill your potential. God is not waiting for you to do it right. He says, this is my daughter, my son, with whom I am well pleased. And as we've talked about throughout this in Ephesians, if we are in Christ, everything that is true of him is true of us. God is not waiting for you to figure it out. He is rejoicing over you right now. But the proclamation is that this is my son with whom I am well pleased. And then Satan enters the equation in Luke chapter 4 and he says... If, if you are God's son. Hmm. Again, lies, distortion. But there's an important note here that Luke provides. Look closely at Luke chapter 4, verse 1. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, was led by the Spirit. 
Something about Jesus' divine agenda means not fleeing or avoiding these forces of darkness, but confronting them head on. Jesus fasts for 40 days and then takes on the devil. It's as if the scriptures are subtly saying that Jesus can take on the devil with his hands tied behind his back. Jesus meets each temptation from the devil, each distortion of his identity, each suggestion that he may not be the son of God with his own vocation and the words from Scripture. In John, Jesus is speaking to a group of religious leaders that are telling him Jesus could not be possibly who he claims to be. And Jesus confronts them, and he says to those religious leaders, he says, you belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. Friends, it is not fun to be called a child of the devil by Jesus. (laughs) He was a murderer from the beginning. Jesus says, speaking of the devil, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, look at this, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and a father of lies, the father of lies. When Peter tells Jesus, as Jesus is is unveiling his divine vocation to give his life on a cross, to be handed over to the authorities, and Peter says, no, this will never happen to you. Jesus looks at Peter, one of his dearest friends in the world, and says, get behind me, Satan. Jesus sees the lies of the enemy for what they are, and whether they come directly from the mouth of the enemy or they come from one of his most trusted friends, Jesus sees the truth in the midst of, of the lies. Again, we could do a much more in-depth survey of these matters, but I hope this will suffice to show us, especially for those of us who are in the distancing dismissal category. We're just like, I don't know what to do with all that forces of darkness stuff. It sounds very Star Warsy and Harry Potter, and I'm going to stay away from that. We probably need to take these matters with more weight and seriousness because Jesus does. Going back to Ephesians 6, Paul writes in verse 12, he says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, not against blood and flesh, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Can I tell you, friends, Ecclesia, pastorally, I think this is one of the most important sections of Scripture for Christians in America in 2022. Paul says, our struggle is not against blood and flesh. If you look at the major struggles as they are articulated in our society right now, what we see is rampant distortion and lies. There is not an agreement upon what constitutes news or truth or fact. What we see is a demonization of blood and flesh and an increasing rhetoric of violence and destruction. Hmm. Lies, disorder, destructive violence, all of that sounds rather familiar, doesn't it? Doesn't come from God, comes from the enemy. And depending on your political persuasion, perhaps you've been told that Joe Biden or Donald Trump, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez or Mitch McConnell is literally the devil. And you, you could say I'm exaggerating, like read the news, like depending on where it's coming from, it's like those people are the ones who are evil and are undermining everything. And friends, this language is unbecoming of a follower of Jesus. Not simply because it's not nice, because it is a lie of the devil. Your enemies are not blood and flesh. Now it doesn't mean, doesn't mean that there is not a quest for truth that Jesus unveils to us and that we should not be agents of truth. 
It doesn't mean that we have to both sides everything and say, well, you know, those people have this going against them. But it does mean that we are never to demonize another person. And we do this so readily when it comes to our political persuasions, and we do this so subtly when it comes to those people that are near and dear to us in our lives. Our enemies, our struggle is not against blood and flesh. And think of how many Christians are caught up in these fights, fighting flesh and blood. Jesus, you know what he tells you to do with your enemies? Love them. Because his death on the cross declares that every single person is of infinite value to the creator of the world, that he would give his life for them. That is to be our perspective on other people. Jesus says, as people crucify him, as he's handed over to the religious leaders, as he's crucified by the Roman imperial powers, Jesus says, forgive them, Father. They don't know what they're doing. And Ecclesia, if you're trafficking in news sources that are always telling you that another group of people are the enemies, you will be formed in the image of those lies and in the destruction they bring. Jesus calls us to enemy love and to see our real enemies behind blood and flesh. So what is Paul referencing when he speaks of rulers, authorities, cosmic powers of this present darkness, spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places? This is a high calling. Thomas Merton wrote a reflection upon the death of a man named Adolf Eichmann. Adolf Eichmann was one of the masterminds of the final solution and the mass murder of the Jewish people during the Nazi regime. One of the things that he found sobering was the fact that Eichmann was not necessarily some raging sociopath, but he was what most of us would consider well-adjusted, rational, sane. Merton writes, if all the Nazis had been psychotics, as some of their leaders probably were, Their appalling cruelty would have been in some sense easier to understand. It is much worse to consider this calm, well-balanced, unperturbed, official, conscientiously going about his desk work, his administrative job, which happened to be the supervision of mass murder. He was thoughtful, orderly, unimaginative. He had a profound respect for system, for law and order. He was obedient, loyal, a faithful officer of a great state. He served his government very well. He was not bothered very much by guilt. I've not heard that he developed any psychosomatic illnesses. Apparently, he slept well. Psychologist M. Scott Peck in his book, People of the Lie, writes writes of a psychology of evil. He says we need a category for this kind of evil. And he details his own clinical experiences with people that he can only label evil. And how seemingly subtle and habitual these evils are and how they're always centered on falsehood, on lies. And when Paul talks of rulers, authorities, cosmic powers, spiritual forces, he's talking about the overlap between the world that we can see and the world of the unseen. Think about it. If somebody asked you to point to a company's culture, what would you point them to? Like maybe there'd be a document, some words that you could point them to. Maybe there'd be some interactions that you could say, okay, this seems to be how these people do things. But a culture is not a concrete thing. It's expressed in interactions, it's expressed in words, but it's not something that you can identify, that you can put under a microscope. Now, maybe you've watched one of the 10,000 documents or documentaries that has been produced on companies that had a culture of dehumanizing, defrauding, and you wonder to yourself, why didn't somebody just do something? But this is what happens with sinful human behavior. 
Not only are our individual hearts hardened, but when we give our hearts to something idolatrous or demonic, we give our allegiance something to something bigger than ourselves, and those take on a life of their own. And this is why if you watch like the Theranos documentary or the Enron like from several years ago, you just see like a person's decisions become outlaid in the company's culture and it just kind of keeps happening and keep going until the thing has spun out of control. Remember, the serpent in Genesis 3 only took what was available to him. The human desire for more, the words that God had spoken, and he distorted them. Biblical scholar Walter Wink writes of these powers and principalities. He says, So formidable a phalanx of hostility demands spiritual weaponry, for it is clear that we contend not against human beings as such, blood and flesh, but against the legitimations, seats of authority, hierarchical systems, ideological justifications, punitive sanctions, which their human incumbents exercise and which transcend these incumbents in both time and power. As I'm reading that out loud, that is a lot of words. What Wink is trying to say is Paul outlays these powers and principalities, authorities, and cosmic places. He's trying to say, like, you have to have a wide-angle perspective of how these things can work themselves out in our daily lives. This is what we see in things like systemic racism, in bureaucracies that dehumanize people, in long-standing animosities between different ethnic groups. Something bigger has transpired. Something empowered by our own hardness of heart has taken over. Paul will write in Romans 6 that sin is not just something that we do. It is a power that we submit to. And one of the most incredible pioneers that I've seen in combating these powers and principalities is a man named Brian Stevenson, founder of the Equal Justice Initiative. If you read his book, A Just Mercy, which was on sale at Starbucks, no less, Brian Stevenson works to end mass incarceration, excessive punishment, and racial inequality. And he writes, We are all implicated when we allow other people to be mistreated. An absence of compassion can corrupt the decency of a community, a state, a nation. Think about this through the language of powers and principalities. Fear and anger can make us vindictive and abusive, unjust and unfair until we all suffer from the absence of mercy and we condemn ourselves as much as we victimize others. The closer we get to mass incarceration and extreme levels of punishment, the more I believe it's necessary to recognize that we all need mercy. We all need justice. And perhaps we all need some measure of unmerited grace. I wish those were the stories of Christian leaders that were told, because that is something. So what now? Now what do we do? Now we know there are powers of darkness lurking behind every corner. The spiritual world is no less real or substantial. Do we live in fear? I don't know about you, like, I see a horror movie commercial come on, and I'm immediately unsettled. I'm like, I want no part of that. And so, like, many of us, like, living in that sort of distancing dismissal category, it's kind of nice not having to live with this, like, oh, is this, like, is this satanic? Like, not having that as a category is actually a real luxury. But for many of you, you know, right? You know these manifestations of darkness. You've seen them up close in the life of your family. So what do we do? Paul tells us, stand. Not in your own strength, not by your own guile, by the own uh, expectation that you can muster up for yourself, but stand in all the strength of the Lord. 
Hannah Arendt said that there was a banality to evil, a nothingness. And this is what Jesus reveals to us on the cross. Is that the God, that God that we worship and serve that has been revealed in Jesus and the devil are not two equal opposing forces. This is not a yin and yang situation. But God is the creator of the world. For whatever reason, there is an element of freedom. There is an element of possibility. And that has been corrupted oftentimes by our own actions and by the actions of forces that are beyond our own explanation. But there is evil to be resisted in the world. And Jesus, as he comes and reveals his kingdom, has shown that that evil has been confronted and it has been conquered by his self-giving, life-giving blood. Colossians chapter 2, verse 14 says, He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he has made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. You see, the forces that are arrayed against Jesus... We're not forces that cause Jesus to submit, but Jesus consistently says, I willingly lay down my life. But you notice that all of these systems converge upon Jesus, not just the individual uh, evil that's in our hearts, the people that are yelling, crucify him. That could have been any one of us in that crowd that day. But the religious system that was the highest, most ordered system in the world at that time, the Jewish system, which declared that this man had to die, colludes with the Roman imperial authorities. You have political authorities, you have religious authorities, you have the, the evil that's in our own hearts. All of these converge upon Jesus. And all of these in the hands of forces of darkness converge upon Jesus on that day at Calvary some 2,000 years ago. And Jesus conquers them. Not some Avenger style, like you don't know what's coming for you, like last minute change of scenery kind of thing. Jesus com- confronts them, conquers them by giving of his self. He does it, as Paul says, because he loved us. And this is God's world. He made it. He spoke into existence. He said that it was good and God is not done with it just because there's been fracture and pain and suffering that has entered into this world because of evil. Jesus conquers these powers, these forces of darkness. And Paul says that we can stand in light of that victory. That we can know the truth, as he says elsewhere, and the truth will set us free. We need to see with immense clarity that Ephesians 6 calls us to a profound battle. As the people of light, we clothe ourselves in the strength of the Lord, opposing the forces of darkness, opposing the lies and distortion that run rampant in our world. Our enemies are not flesh and blood, but they are powers and principalities. Those are the things that keep those we love enslaved. Those are the things that that impose injustice in our world. Those are the things that cause us to give our hearts to smaller things that are not Jesus. I don't know if you noticed this week. I would normally not notice this, but DJ Khaled came out with a new album and I've got to be honest, that has never registered on my radar. <laughs> but it, he had a song on there that I had, I've become quite fond of. Kanye West, when he was, I don't know, I, temporarily, I don't know what his conversion status is. I'm not going to make any. But he, he, he put out this like, gospel album, and it was called Use This Gospel. I love this song. It's a cool song. But there was a remix of this song that featured Eminem. Now, if you're my age... 37, Eminem has been popular for a long time at this point. And he's been popular for talking about some really dark 
and really crazy stuff. Stuff I, like, I don't generally listen to Eminem. But I heard some people talking about this song. I was like, all right, I'm going to check it out. I like the song. Let's see what he has to say. And Eminem gets on this album, and he starts just talking about the grace of Jesus. And I just want to read some of these words for you. Because we live in a world mired in lies. And uh, frankly, most of what I hear Eminem say are just repetition of lies. I'm like, oh man, he's in bondage. But then listen to this. I'm going to call the band up as we're moving to the table here. When temptation is almost like Satan, I'm not going to wrap this because, I mean, there's many reasons. <laughs> when temptation is almost like Satan is making you try take, to take away you from your daughters, dangling a bunch of painkillers on you, waving them in your face and then watching them come in extra strength. And that's why they make them in rectangular objects because that's the shape of a coffin. Though it ain't medication this time, but the devil's egging me on. I ain't gonna let him break me because I am a soldier. You can bank on that promise like the Chamber of Commerce. So my savior I call on to rescue me from these depths of despair. So these demons better step like a stair because he is my shepherd. I'm armed with Jesus, my weapon is prayer. And I think there's something so powerful about that because there's this element to which we want to stand. We want to stand in our strength. We want to say, God, I didn't, I didn't leave you. I didn't walk away from you. And to that, Jesus just says, that's our, our natural impulse is to, is to give ourselves to lies and to smaller things. But as Eminem is sort of talking about, he's like, but there's a strength there. The strength of the shepherd, the strength of the one who walks with us through the valley of the, de- the shadow of death that will never leave us, that has gone before us, that is our pioneer. And as we talk about the devil, what we're doing is just unmasking lies. And I see how often lies just run rampant, not only in our culture out there, but in our heads. We believe the lie that Jesus is not enough for us. That it's left to us at some level to figure it out. We believe the lie, even though we can say that God loves everybody, that Jesus doesn't love us. Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil by his own death. And he does so with his great victory on the cross to expose both the truth that when we've given ourselves to smaller things, to lies, that we are capable of profound evil a profound hatred, but the truth that while we were enemies of God, God sent his son to die for us. That we are no longer subject and slave to lies because of who Jesus is. And as we wrap up today, as we move to the table, I simply want to confront the lies that are in this room. And I can't name them all for you. But what I can tell you is the truth. Is that Jesus loves you. That Jesus has called you to a life that is bigger than the one that you choose.